Chapter Two of Clover. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Clover by Susan Coolidge. Chapter Two The Day of Happy Letters. The arrival of the morning boat with letters and newspapers from the east was the great event of the day in Burnett. It was due at eleven o'clock. And everybody, consciously or unconsciously, was on the lookout for it. The gentlemen were at the office bright and early, and stood chatting with each other and fingering the keys of their little drawers till the rattle of the shutter announced that the mail was distributed. Their wives and daughters at home, meanwhile, were equally in a state of expectation, and whatever they might be doing kept ears and eyes on the alert for the step on the gravel and the click of the latch. Which betokened the arrival of the family newsbringer. Doctors cannot command their time like other people, and Doctor Carr was often detained by his patients and made late for the mail. So it was all the pleasanter a surprise when, on the great day of the cake baking, he came in earlier than usual with his hands quite full of letters and parcels. All the girls made a rush for him at once, but he fended them off with an elbow, while with teasing slowness he read the addresses on the envelopes. Miss Carr, Miss Carr, Miss Catherine Carr, Miss Carr again, four for you, Katie. Doctor P. Carr, a bill and a newspaper, I perceive. All that an old country doctor with a daughter about to be married ought to expect, I suppose. Miss Clover E. Carr, one for the confidant in white linen. Here, take it, Clovey. Miss Carr again, Katie. You have the lion's share. Miss Joanna Carr, in the unmistakable handwriting of Miss Inches. Miss Catherine Carr, care Doctor Carr. That looks like a wedding present, Katie. Miss Elsie Carr, Cecy's hand, I should say. Miss Carr once more, from the conquering hero, judging from the postmark. Doctor Carr, another newspaper, and hello. One more for Miss Carr. Well, children, I hope for once you are satisfied with the amount of your correspondence. My arm fairly aches with the weight of it. I hope the letters are not so heavy inside as out. I am quite satisfied, Papa. Thank you," said Katie, looking up with a happy smile from Ned's letter, which she had torn open first of all. "Are you going, dear?" She laid her packages down to help him on with his coat. Katie never forgot her father. Yes, I am going. Time and rheumatism wait for no man. You can tell me your news when I come back. It is not fair to peep into love letters, so I will only say of Ned's that it was very long, very entertaining. Katie thought, and contained the pleasant information that the Natchitoches was to sail four days after it was posted, and would reach New York a week sooner than any one had dared to hope. The letter contained several other things as well. Which showed Katie how continually she had been in his thoughts—a painting on rice paper, a dried flower or two, a couple of little pen and ink sketches of the harbor of Santa Lucia and the shipping, and a small cravat of an odd convent lace folded very flat and smooth. Altogether, it was a delightful letter, and Katie read it as it were in leaps, her eyes catching at the salient points and leaving the details to be dwelt upon when she should be alone. This done, she thrust the letter into her pocket, and proceeded to examine the others. The first was in cousin Helen's clear, beautiful handwriting. Dear Katie, 
If anyone had told us ten years ago that in this particular year of grace you would be getting ready to be married, and I preparing to come to your wedding, I think we should have listened with some incredulity as to an agreeable fairy tale which could not possibly come true. We didn't look much like it, did we? You in your big chair, and I on my sofa. Yet here we are. When your letter first reached me, it seemed a sort of impossible thing that I should accept your invitation. But the more I thought about it, the more I felt as if I must. And now things seem to be working round to that end quite marvelously. I have had a good winter, but the doctor wishes me to try the experiment of the water-cure again, which benefited me so much the summer of your accident. This brings me in your direction, and I don't see why I might not come a little earlier than I otherwise should, and have the great pleasure of seeing you married, and making acquaintance with Lieutenant Worthington, that is, if you are perfectly sure that to have at so busy a time a guest who— like the Queen of Spain, has the disadvantage of being without legs, will not be more care than enjoyment. Think seriously over this point, and don't send for me unless you are certain. Meanwhile, I am making ready. Alex and Emma and little Helen, who is a pretty big Helen now, are to be my escorts as far as Buffalo on their way to Niagara. After that is all plain sailing, and Jane Carter and I can manage very well for ourselves. It seems like a dream to think that I may see you all so soon, but it is such a pleasant one that I would not wake up on any account. I have a little gift which I shall bring you myself, my Katie, but I have a fancy also that you shall wear some trifling thing on your wedding day which comes from me, so for fear of being forestalled I will say now, please don't buy any stockings for the occasion, but wear the pair which go with this, for the sake of your loving... "'Cousin Helen.' "'These must be they,' cried Elsie, pouncing on one of the little packages. "'May I cut the string, Katie?' Permission was granted, and Elsie cut the string. It was indeed a pair of beautiful white silk stockings, embroidered in an open pattern, and far finer than anything which Katie would have thought of choosing for herself. "'Don't they look exactly like Cousin Helen?' she said, fondling them. Her things always are choicer and prettier than anybody else's somehow. I can't think how she does it, when she never by any chance goes into a shop. Who can this be from, I wonder? This was the second little package. It proved to contain a small volume bound in white and gold, entitled Advice to Brides. On the flyleaf appeared this inscription. To Catherine Carr, on the occasion of her approaching bridal, from her affectionate teacher, Maria Nipson. 1 Timothy 2.11 Clover at once ran to fetch her testament, that she might verify the quotation, and announced with a shriek of laughter that it was, Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection, while Katie, much diverted, read extracts casually selected from the work, such as, A wife should receive her husband's decree without cavil or question, remembering that the husband is the head of the wife, and that in all matters of dispute his opinion naturally and scripturally outweighs her own. Or, a soft answer turneth away wrath. If your husband comes home fretted and impatient, do not answer him sharply, but soothe him with gentle words and caresses. Strict attention to the minor details of domestic management will often avail to secure peace. And again, Keep in mind the epitaph raised in honor of an exemplary wife of the last century, 
she never banged the door. Qualify yourself for a similar testimonial. "'Tonta never does bang doors,' remarked Amy, who had come in as this last elegant extract was being read. "'No, that's true. She doesn't,' said Clover. "'Her prevailing vice is to leave them open. I like that truth about a good dinner availing to secure peace, and the advice to caress your bear when he is at his crossest. Ned never does issue decrees, though, I fancy, and on the whole, Katie, I don't believe Mrs. Nipson's present is going to be any particular comfort in your future trials.' Do read something else to take the taste out of our mouths. We will listen in all subjection. Katie was already deep in a long epistle from Rose. This is too delicious, she said. Do listen. And she began again at the beginning. My sweetest of all old sweets, come to your wedding. Of course I shall. It would never seem to me to have any legal sanction whatever if I were not there to add my blessing. Only let me know which day, early in June, it is to be, that I may make ready. Deniston will fetch us on, and by a special piece of good luck, a man in Chicago, whose name I shall always bless, if only I can remember what it is, has been instigated by our mutual good angel to want him on business just about that time, so that he would have to go west anyway, and would rather have me along than not, and is perfectly resigned to his fate." I mean to come three days before and stay three days after the wedding, if I may, and altogether it is going to be a lark of larks. Little Rose can talk quite fluently now, and almost read. That is, she knows six letters of her picture alphabet. She composes poems also. The other day she suddenly announced, Mama, I have made up a sort of a M. May I say it to you? I naturally consented, and this was the M. Jump in the parlor, jump in the hall. God made us all. Now did you ever hear of anything quite so dear as that, for a baby only three years and five months old? I tell you, she is a wonder. You will all adore her, Clover particularly. Oh, my dear little C, to think I am going to see her. I met both Ellen Gray and Esther Dearborn the other day. And where do you think it was? At Mary Silver's wedding. Yes, she is actually married to the Reverend Charles Playfair Struthers, and settled in a little parsonage somewhere in the Hoosack Tunnel, or near it, and already immersed in duties. I can't think what arguments he used to screw her up to the rash act, but there she is. It wasn't exactly what one would call a cheerful wedding. All the connection took it very seriously, and Mary's uncle, who married her, preached quite a lengthy funeral discourse to the young couple and got them nicely ready for death, burial, and the next world, before he would consent to unite them for this. He was a solemn-looking old person, who had been a missionary, and had laid away three dear wives in foreign lands, as he confided to me afterward over a plate of ice-cream. He seemed to me to be taking notice, as they say, of babies, and it is barely possible that he mistook me for a single woman, for his attentions were rather pronounced till I introduced my husband prominently into the conversation— after that he seemed more attracted by Ellen Gray. Mary cried straight through the ceremony. In fact, I imagine she cried straight through the engagement, for her ears looked wept out and had scarlet rims, and she was as white as her veil. In fact, whiter, for that was made of beautiful Pointe de Venise, and was just a trifle yellowish. Everybody cried. Her mother and sister sobbed aloud. So did several maiden aunts and a grandmother or two and a few cousins. 
the church resounded with googles and gasps, like a great deal of bath-water running out of an ill-constructed tub. Mr. Silver also wept, as a businessman may, in a series of sniffs interspersed with silk handkerchief. You know the kind. Altogether it was a most cheerless affair. I seemed to be the only person present who was not in tears, but I really didn't see anything to cry about, so far as I was concerned, though I felt very hard-hearted. I had to go alone, for Deniston was in New York. I got to the church rather early, and my new spring bonnet, which is a superior one, seemed to impress the ushers, so they put me in a very distinguished front pew all by myself. I bore my honors meekly, and found them quite agreeable, in fact. You know I always did like to be made much of. So you can imagine my disgust when presently three of the stoutest ladies you ever saw came sailing up the aisle, and prepared to invade my pew. "'Please move up, madam,' said the fattest of all, who wore a wonderful yellow hat. But I was not raised at Hillsover for nothing, and remembering the success of our little ruse on the railroad train long ago, I stepped out into the aisle, and with my sweetest smile made room for them to pass. "'Perhaps I would better keep this seat next the door,' I murmured to the yellow lady, in case an attack should come on. "'An attack!' she repeated, in an accent of alarm. She whispered to the others— all three eyed me suspiciously, while I stood looking as pensive and suffering as I could. Then, after confabulating together for a little, they all swept into the seat behind mine, and I heard them speculating in low tones as to whether it was epilepsy or catalepsy or convulsions that I was subject to. I presume they made signs to all the other people who came in to steer clear of the lady with fits, for nobody invaded my privacy, and I sat in lonely splendor with a pew to myself— and was very comfortable indeed. Mary's dress was white satin, with a great deal of point lace and pearl passamentary, and she wore a pair of diamond earrings which her father gave her, and a bouquet almost but not quite as large, which was the gift of the bridegroom. He has a nice face, and I think silvery Mary will be happy with him, much happier than with her rather dismal family, though his salary is only fifteen hundred a year, and pearl passamentary, I believe, quite unknown and useless in the Hussack region. She had loads of the most beautiful presents you ever saw. All the silvers are rolling in riches, you know. One little thing made me laugh, for it was so like her. When the clergyman said, "'Mary, wilt thou take this man to be thy wedded husband?' I distinctly saw her put her fingers over her mouth in the old, frightened way. It was only for a second, and after that I rather think Mr. Strollers held her hand tight for fear she might do it again. She sent her love to you, Katie. What sort of a gown are you going to have, by the way? I have kept my best news to the last, which is that Deniston has at last given way, and we are to move into town in October. We have taken a little house in West Cedar Street— it is quite small and very dingy, and I presume inconvenient, but I already love it to distraction and feel as if I should sit up all night for the first month to enjoy the sensation of being no longer that horrid thing, a resident of the suburbs. I hunt the paper shops and collect samples of odd and occult pattern, and compare them with carpets, and am altogether in my element, only longing for the time to come when I may put together my pots and pans and betake me across the mill-dam. Meantime, Rosaline is living in a state of quarantine. She is not permitted to speak with any other children, or even to look out a window at one, for fear she may contract some sort of contagious disease and spoil our beautiful visit to Burnet. She sends you a kiss, and so do I. 
and Mother and Sylvia and Deniston and Grandmamma particularly desire their love. Your loving, Red. Oh, cried Clover, catching Katie around the waist and waltzing wildly about the room, what a delicious letter! What fun we are going to have! It seems too good to be true. Tum-ti-ti, tum-ti-ti, keep step, Katie. I forgive you for the first time for getting married. I never did before, really and truly. Tum-ti-ti, I'm so happy that I must dance. There go my letters, said Katie, as with the last rapid twirl, Rose's many-sheeted epistle, and the advice to brides flew to right and left. There go two of your hairpins, Clover. Oh, do stop, we shall all be in pieces. Clover brought her gyrations to a close by landing her unwilling partner suddenly on the sofa. Then, with a last squeeze and a rapid kiss, she began to pick up the scattered letters. "'Now read the rest,' she commanded, "'though anything else will sound flat after roses.' "'Hear this first, said Elsie, who had taken advantage of the pause to open her own letter. "'It is from Cecy, and she says she is coming to spend a month with her mother on purpose to be here for Katie's wedding.' She sends heaps of love to you, Katie, and says she only hopes that Mr. Worthington will prove as perfectly satisfactory in all respects as her own dear Sylvester. My gracious, I should hope he would, put in Clover, who was still in the wildest spirits. What a dear old goose Cece is! I never hankered in the least for Sylvester Slack, did you, Katie? Certainly not. It would be a most improper proceeding if I had, replied Katie, with a laugh. "'Whom do you think this letter is from, girls? "'Do listen to it. "'It is written by that nice old Mr. Allen Beach "'whom we met in London. "'Don't you recollect my telling you about him?' "'My dear Miss Carr, "'our friends in Harley Street have told me a piece of news concerning you, "'which came to them lately in a letter from Mrs. Ash, "'and I hope you will permit me to offer you "'my most sincere congratulations and good wishes.' I recollect meeting Lieutenant Worthington when he was here two years ago, and liking him very much. One is always glad in a foreign land to be able to show so good a specimen of one's young countrymen as he affords. Not that England need be counted as a foreign country by any American, and least of all by myself, who have found it a true home for so many years. As a little souvenir of our week of sight-seeing together, of which I retain most agreeable remembrances, I have sent you by my friends the Sawyers, who sail for America shortly, a copy of Hare's Walks in London, which a young protégé of mine has for the past year been illustrating with photographs of the many curious old buildings described. You took so much interest in them while here that I hope you may like to see them again. Will you please accept it with my most cordial wishes for your future, and believe me, very faithfully your friend, Beach. What a nice letter, said Clover. "'Isn't it?' replied Katie, with shining eyes. "'What a thing it is to be a gentleman, "'and to know how to say and do things in the right way. "'I am so surprised and pleased that Mr. Beach should remember me. "'I never supposed he would. "'He sees so many people in London all the time, "'and it is quite a long time since we were there, nearly two years. "'Was your letter from Miss Inches, John?' "'Yes, and Mamma Marion sends you her love.' "'And there's a present coming by express for you, "'some sort of a book with a hard name. "'I can scarcely make it out. "'The r-r-r-something of Omar K-E-well, anyway, it's a book, "'and she hopes you will read Emerson's essay on friendship over before you are married, "'because it's a helpful utterance and adjusts the mind to mutual conditions.' 
"'Worse than First Timothy 2.11,' muttered Clover. "'Well, Katie, dear, what next? "'What are you laughing at?' "'You will never guess, I am sure. "'This is a letter from Miss Jane, "'and she has made me this pincushion.' "'The pincushion was of a familiar type, two circles of pasteboard covered with grey silk, "'neatly overhanded together, "'and stuck with a row of closely fitting pins. "'Miss Jane's note ran as follows. "'April 21. "'Dear Katie, "'I hear from Mrs. Nibson that you are to be married shortly, "'and I want to say that you have my best wishes for your future. "'I think a man ought to be happy who has you for a wife. "'I only hope that the one you have chosen is worthy of you. "'Probably he isn't, but perhaps you won't find it out. "'Life is a naughty problem for most of us.' May you solve it satisfactorily to yourself and others. I have nothing to send but my good wishes and a few pins. They are not an unlucky present, I believe, as scissors are said to be. Remember me to your sister, and believe me to be, with true regard, yours, Jane A. Bangs. Dear me, is that her name? cried Clover. I always supposed she was baptized Miss Jane. It never occurred to me that she had any other title. What appropriate initials! "'How she used to J.A.B. with us! "'Now, Clovey, that's not kind. "'It's a very nice note indeed, and I am touched by it. "'It's a beautiful compliment to say that the man ought to be happy who has got me, I think. "'I never supposed that Miss Jane could pay a compliment. "'Or make a joke. "'That touch about the scissors is really jocose for Miss Jane. "'Rose Red will shriek over the letter and that particularly rigid pincushion. "'They are both of them so exactly like her.' "'Dear me, only one letter left. "'Who is that from, Katie? "'How fast one does eat up one's pleasures. "'But you had a letter yourself. "'Surely Papa said so. "'What was that? "'You haven't read it to us.' "'No, for it contains a secret "'which you are not to hear just yet,' replied Clover. "'Brides mustn't ask questions. "'Go on with yours.' "'Mine is from Louisa Agnew. "'Quite a long one, too. "'It's an age since we heard from her, you know.' "'April 24. Dear Katie, your delightful letter and invitation came day before yesterday, and thank you for both. There is nothing in the world that would please me better than to come to your wedding if it were possible, but it simply isn't. If you lived in New Haven now, or even Boston, but Burnett is so dreadfully far off, it seems as inaccessible as Kamchatka to a person who, like myself, has a house to keep and two babies to take care of. Don't look so alarmed. The house is the same house you saw when you were here, and so is one of the babies. The other is a new acquisition just two years old, and as great a darling as Daisy was at the same age. My mother has been really better in health since he came, but just now she is at a sort of rest-cure in Kentucky, and I have my hands full with Papa and the children, as you can imagine, so I can't go off two days' journey to a wedding. Not even to yours, my dearest old Katie." I shall think about you all day long on the day, when I know which it is, and try to imagine just how everything looks, and yet I don't find that quite easy, for somehow I fancy that your wedding will be a little different from the common run. You always were different from other people to me, you know, you and Clover, and I love you so much, and I always shall. Papa has taken a Kit-Kat portrait of me in oils, and a blue dress, which he thinks is like, and which I am going to send you as soon as it comes home from the framers. I hope you will like it a little for my sake. Dear Katie, I send so much love with it. I have only seen the pages in the streets since they came home from Europe, but the last piece of news here is Lily's engagement, to Comte Ernest de Conflans. 
He has something to do with a French legation in Washington, I believe, and they crossed in the same steamer. I saw him driving with her the other day. A little man, not handsome, and very dark. I do not know when they are to be married. Your cousin Clarence is in Colorado. With two kisses apiece, and a great hug for you, Katie, I am always your affectionate friend, Louisa. Dear me, said the insatiable Clover, is that the very last? I wish we had another mail, and twelve more letters coming in at once. What a blessed institution the post office is. End of chapter 2 Recording by Hannah Mary